to be able to grow, you have to put yourself in a position where you can grow. I think sometimes we make decisions based on what we know. And I think there is very little opportunity for growth. And what I consider reward, if you keep repeating the situations, environments, the work that you do that you already know, I think trying to put yourself in positions where you don't know the answer, it's what actually helps you push forward. I'm Jocelyn K. Gly, and this is Hurry Slowly, a podcast about pacing yourself where I explore how you can avoid burnout, improve your productivity, and activate your creative mind, all through the simple act of slowing down. Today, we're going to talk about bucket lists. You know, that list of all those things you really, really want to do before you die, but that you keep putting off for some reason? Maybe it's taking a trip around the world, or maybe it's writing a novel, or maybe it's something simpler like riding a horse something that I recently realized I have never actually done. But why don't we do these things? I would argue that there's two key factors. The first is time. We tell ourselves that we can't take time off work, that our time is stretched too thin already, or that it's just not the right time, not yet. But at a deeper level, underneath all that, there's the second factor, fear. What will happen when I do this thing I've always talked about doing? What if I fail? What if it's disappointing? What if I change? There's the risk of taking the time, and then there's the risk of taking the journey. The risk that if you finally do this thing, you will be transformed. And transformation isn't always comfortable. My guest today is Matthias Correa, a designer, an entrepreneur, and an adventurer. He's a partner at Union Garage, which is a motorcycle gear shop online and in Brooklyn and the co-founder of the online creative network Behance, where he was head of design for nine years and where we became close creative collaborators and friends. But this isn't an episode about our startup days. It's an episode about journeys. And Matthias recently went on a very long one. For a project called Two Wheels South, Matthias and his friend Joel went on a seven-month-long motorcycle trip from Brooklyn to Patagonia, in which they traveled 19,000 miles through 13 different countries. This trip, of course, was something that had always been on Matthias's bucket list. And in this conversation, which was originally recorded in front of a live audience, Matthias and I dig into what motivated him to finally pull the trigger. We talk about leaning into risk, the calculus of stepping outside your comfort zone, and last but not least, what it feels like to fly over your handlebars at 70 miles per hour. Let's get started. So I know this trip was brewing for a really long time. I mean, I think you and I had even talked about it probably years ago, Um, sort of in the back of your mind. You would talk to a lot of different people about it, but what made you decide to kind of finally pull the trigger on it? Since I was probably 18, 19 years old, uh, I've been taking small trips. My friend Joel, who actually end up going with me on this long trip. And every time we talked about this big, crazy adventure. Um, But at the time, any reasons, money, work, time itself, it seemed like it wasn't feasible. Time passed, 
And, you know, every year when we saw each other back in Barcelona, we talked about it. Then we took a couple of trips. I would go back to Spain. We did Canada. And, you know, time keep passing, time keep passing. And we keep putting it off and off and off. And then I have to say one of the triggers was a very, one of the, probably the saddest moment and darkest moment of my life, which when my sister passed away two and a half years ago. So, and... You know, that really made me realize she was very young. She was 38 years of age um, and made me realize that we don't have forever to do the things that we want to do in life. So at the time I had uh, I had left Behance and sort of had a different perspective about what um, what I was doing, what I wanted to do, what I didn't want to do. And that event really um, sort of sparked a thought process that ended up me saying, this is something I need to do um, for myself. I can't put, in, put it off any longer. And um, beyond anything else that I want to achieve in life, this is something I think it, it's necessary for me to, 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 to even find you know, my new direction, if you will. When you had also told me when we were kind of talking um, a couple of days ago about about the trip that um, your sister also kind of was one of those people who, much like myself, was kind of always living in the future. And so that was part of the, you know, wanting, I guess, to change that a bit for yourself. I mean, absolutely. I think I I use my sister, but in the end, uh, I think I was doing it as well. You know, it it is just a projection. I think it's easier to see it on all the people that see it in yourself. I think in the end, I saw that I was replicating this idea of like, oh, when I get this job, when I get that thing that I want, when I get to learn this thing, then I'll do, then I'll be there, then I'll be happy. You know, eventually it's always about trying to, 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 to achieve happiness, which I think is more of a, a, a temporary state that we reach than something that it's, stays constant. Um, and I felt that, yeah, that I, I've, I put it out for too long and I, was, um, I didn't want to leave in that future anymore. I wanted to sort of feel what what it felt to be present in in in, in my own life in my moment. I don't know. It's it's a hard thing. It's a little abstract at times when I think about it. <laughs> <laughs> so you decided to do it. You were telling people about it. You were like, okay, this is like really this game on, right? And did you find like were people supportive or were they kind of like mm, like a little like that's kind of dangerous. Well, in a way, the the reason I started telling people was because I felt that by telling people, I had to do it. You know, that's the that's the whole accountability thing. You start telling people, and then people start asking you like a month after, two months after, three months after, like, oh, so how is the planning? And you know, it, it was a mix of of things. Um, I didn't really need validation for this specific thing because I think I came to the conclusion that this was for myself. And I didn't really care what other people think or thought about uh, my use of time. Um, it was a personal thing. It's a challenge. It's about uh, adventure. It's about the unknown. It's about how far can I push myself emotionally, mentally, and physically. But I, I got all sorts of reactions. A lot of them were uh, around, you're going to be killed. 
basically. Like, you know, how, do you carry guns? I'm like, carry guns? What am I carrying guns for? Um, do you are, are you are you going through Mexico, El Salvador? Are you going to Colombia? And like all these fears that really came from nowhere because most of the people that were so fearful about these places, one, have never done a motorcycle trip and never been to the places they were talking about. So it's sort of strange that they would come up with this. And the more I, I talk to people, the more I realize that I, I said, okay, I have to talk to someone who's actually done this trip. So I reach out to people in the, in the internet sphere, like people who are posting their travels through Instagram. And I met people uh, that live in New York and I finished the trip, like even longer trips than I was planning to do. And everyone was like, you just got to go. And I, at the beginning, I didn't really understand. What, what do you mean you just got to go? I was planning. I was over planning. I was overthinking the amount of things, the quantity, like absolutely everything seemed crucial to, to this thing. But later on, you realize that everything you plan it won't happen, and everything that happened, you have not planned for. So it is, um, I got a lot of different reactions, uh, and most of them were negative, which put a lot of fear in me, and it took a while to actually get out of that while we were on the trip even, so. And I know you did plan for a long time. I mean, you've spent at least a couple of years just learning how to fix motorcycles, right, mm -hmm. so that you could even... Yeah. go on the trip yeah. in the first place, right? And there was like an element of you did research to try to sort of, I guess, minimize kind of some of those yeah. risks, be they real or not, you know, that other people were kind of talking to you about. Yeah, I think that my thing is about controlled risk. Um, I feel that there's a lot of people that take a lot more risk than I do. And some people would think that this is crazy. Um, but at the same time, I feel that I have to build a certain level of knowledge, you know, prepare myself and things I know I, I can control so I can learn how to fix motorcycles, which means I can control that part. If, a, if I get a flat tire, if, you know, something breaks, I can start fixing it. I didn't want to be dependent so much on other people, but at the same time, it's, it's a way to feel uh, a sense of comfort um, before I, before I left. But at the end, I, I spent maybe since I was 14, so I spent, what, 26 years learning how to ride motorcycles. I spent six years learning how to um, fix and restore vintage motorcycles. And, and the rest was just unknown. So it is a little bit of a fantasy thinking that you can prepare for these things. I think you just have to sort of take the first step and go. But yeah, I wanted to, to feel like I had some, some sort of control over certain things. Well, so you were you were telling me the other day about um, the the two and a half hour trip that took like twenty two hours, <laughs> um, um, which oh, I thought was yeah. a pretty yeah, in yeah, yeah, interesting yeah, yeah. story. Maybe you yeah, could I mean I, that was sort of a strange block because <laughs> I was thinking about like something like where do we like actually could not move forward. Um, we were. Um, we're in Peru going towards Cajamarca. One morning we get up and we're like, we look at the map. It's like Cajamarca is three and a half hours away. Easy day. We're getting there. We'll figure it out after. So we take the bikes and we're going to a normal sort of tarmac road. It's pretty shitty, but it's, it's okay. Then after half an hour, it becomes dirt road, which at that point, uh, probably five months in, it was pretty usual to us. And we keep going. I said, Joel, we connected through the communicators on the helmets. And I said, Joel, how much is the, you know, the Google map says? Like, it's two and a half hours. Easy. 
we'll be there, you know, have lunch, it'll be great. So we keep going. And at that point, we're going up, you know, and it's not very steep, but we keep going up and, you know, the landscape becomes more like bare and it's just, it's just, just mountains. There's no people, there's no signs, there's no houses, there's, there's nothing. It's just landscape. It's literally a mountain uh, that has this sort of this, this, uh, this dirt road, this, you know, almost like, you know, um, carriage road. Um, there's definitely not cars going through that. And as we keep going, you know, 45 minutes pass, an hour, and I say, Joel, how much, this, how far are we? It's two and a half hours. And I'm like, okay, uh, another 45 minutes. How far are we are? Two and a half hours. And I'm like, okay, something's going on here. So what happened is that Google Maps doesn't really know where we were and sort of was locked into this loop. So at this point, we're five hours from wherever we were going, uh, from where we were that morning, and we really didn't know where we were and how far we were from our destination. And there's really no landmarks, no nothing. It's just landscape. And the map really can't, you know, you can't really understand what, where you are and where you're going. And after a while, we realized that we're hitting, at that point in the trip, you know very well what time the sun comes up and what time the sun goes down. And it was probably around 5.50. You know, the sun goes down at 6.30 and we have no idea where we are. We are around 13,000 feet of altitude, uh, some, some, some 4,000 meters of altitude. So the air is very thin. Uh, we know when the sun goes down, it gets really cold very fast. Um, we do have camping uh, equipment, but we never really camped at that altitude. There's really not a flat surface to, to, to camp. There's only this road and just huge... Um, uh, I don't know how you say like uh, drop offs. Drop drop offs. When do you guys have gas? Well, that's the thing. We have limited gas. We have um, limited food, and we have very little water as well. And and we just don't know how far our gas will take us because at the altitude, you're also with a carbureted motorcycle, you just use more gas up. So there's all these things in our head that we don't know and we can't control. But what we're thinking is, well, we have to keep going to see if we find a, a way out of, of this. And it's these roads are going around the mountains. We're sort of going forward and then 180 and then backwards. And it's never really a straight line. So at some point, I'm going in the front. Joel is in the back. I'm looking at the road, sort of uh, going you know, around the stones and the potholes and the, everything that will get in the way. And he sort of is able to sort of look up and he says, Matthias, there's, there's someone there. And I look up and there is a little like the tiniest blue dots, uh, uh, like maybe like 15 minutes in front of us. And it looks like some shanty town. We don't really know. It's just the only thing in these mountains. We move. It's like we have to go see who's there. We go up there. And um, after a very muddy sort of steep climb with the bikes, always with the bikes, by the way, which is, becomes very difficult, we find this couple which have a dog and they're probably in their 60s and they're just, they just live there. And I think there's something that, you know, they live there in the middle of the mountains. And we say, how, how far are we? And it says, you are probably four miles from Cajamarca. And we're like, oh, thank God. It's like 6.20. We get there in like 20 minutes. It'll be great. He says, take that road. And he points down at a road. This Imagine, you know, you're in a mountain looking down at other mountains. This little brown sort of uh, you know, noodle that goes through it. And it's just so tiny. And we know which one is the one we were going. Okay, just take the first ride. 
off the main road. Sounds easy, four miles, first ride, great. We take it off, one mile, three miles, seven miles, 18 miles, 23 miles, 30 miles. No right. It's dark. We've been going on darkness for two and a half hours, over puddles, we're at 14,000 feet, it's cold, we're getting wet, and we just, if you look at us from, from an helicopter, which is these two tiny, tiny lights, in a, in a dark landscape, there's no moon whatsoever. There's nothing. It's just 15 feet ahead of us of what we can see, what we know, and we're not going back. And there's no place to camp. It's not like, oh, this is a beautiful prairie. Let's just set up camp here. <laughs> there's no, that's not, doesn't exist. So in your head, you're like sort of going through this. We're not talking. At that point, Joel and I know where we are, like what, what is happening? We're not talking, it's not for anything, but we're also focused on the road. The road is really, really bad. Rocks the size of a softball, which means if you hit that, not only you can screw up your rim, which is a terrible thing, but also the road is nine feet wide, you know, or 11 feet wide. Like you can't really screw it up because it could be, and you know, you, you break your ankle there. I don't know what we do. It's, we don't know where we are. And obviously, we're not four miles from Cajamarca. We have to pause right now for a message from our sponsors, but stay tuned. After the jump, we'll find out if Matias and Joel ever make it to Cajamarca. And I have to say, it's a pretty good story. This episode is brought to you by Hover. Have you been thinking about pulling the trigger on a new online identity, but you just keep putting it off? Well, here's a little story about how I tricked myself into making a new website. Step one, I plunked down the cash to buy a new domain. Step two, I had some sweet new business cards made featuring my domain name. And step three, I then had to build the website and activate the domain, or I could never give out any of the new business cards that I was so excited about. Pretty crafty, right? So if you're ready to take that first step to invest in a new online identity, the place to start is Hover.com. With 400 plus domain name extensions to choose from, you're sure to find a name that matches your passion. And lately, I've been feeling particularly fond of the .me extension. Why beat around the bush, right? Especially if you're looking for a domain to showcase your portfolio or your work as a talented individual proprietor. Hover also offers stellar customer support, they never try to upsell you, and they have nifty features like Hover Connect that make it dead simple to connect your domain to popular website builders with just a few clicks. So if you've got an idea you're passionate about, start laying the groundwork now by heading over to hover.com slash hurry slowly to get 10% off your first purchase. That's H-O-V-E-R dot com slash hurry slowly. This episode is also brought to you by SaneBox. Fun fact, the average office-bound human spends almost two and a half hours a day on email. That's 12 plus hours a week on email. Hours that you could no doubt spend on more meaningful work if you could just get them back. And that's where SaneBox comes in. With just a few clicks, SaneBox automatically gets your email under control and makes keeping it that way forever super easy. On average, SaneBox users save two to four hours every single week. But SaneBox also helps you keep the important stuff top of mind. 
You can set same reminders to ping you if someone hasn't replied to your email by a certain date. And the same black hole makes it easy to vanquish pesky senders from your inbox so that you never, ever have to hear from them again. Best of all, you can use SaneBox with any email client or phone anywhere you check your email. See how SaneBox can magically remove distractions from your inbox with a free two-week trial. Visit SaneBox.com slash hurry slowly today to start your free trial and get a $25 credit. That's S-A-N-E-B-O-X dot com slash hurry slowly. Let's dive back into Matthias's story as things start to get a little existential. So we keep going for another maybe 30 minutes and we just, you know, I'm, I'm thinking, why am I here? You know, what am I doing? Is this, does this make sense? What is, should I stop? But if we stop, what do we do? Like, should we keep going? How far are we going? Like, it's just, and at the same time, I realized that we haven't eaten in nine hours. We've been on the bike for 11 uh, the whole day. And I'm like, wow my body's pretty strong. Like the things that it does, and obviously when you're under stress and these sort of situations of danger, it's pretty remarkable. And I'm thinking about all these things. And at some point after 10 million turns, um, there is a, Joel says, hey, there's a right here. And we stop and I look up and it looks terrible. It looks so much worse than the road we're going. And it's the only right. And I said to him, well, you know, let's try why not? Let's go up. Let's see what's up there. And if it's not good, we'll just come back up and keep going. Like this is a road. It takes somewhere. Otherwise, it wouldn't be built. Um, so we take that ride. And the first thing I see maybe three minutes in is the creepiest thing has ever happened to me. It's a abandoned, use pink child's bicycle. <laughs> and I'm like, why? what? <laughs> It's like David Lynch, Ward's nightmare. Others have come before you. Yeah, this is the murder scene, you know? So I'm like, oh, that's creepy as hell. And like, I'm hungry, I'm tired, I'm cold, I'm wet. I'm high of altitude and there's a creepiest bike ever. Then we keep going for maybe five more minutes. And as again, I'm in front, I'm looking at the, I'm literally looking at the ground all the time. Uh, and Joel says, hey, there's lights there. And I'm like, I look up and there's this flashing, flickering lights, blackness in front of us. There's nothing. You can't see the, the shapes of the mountains. It's just pure darkness. And these flickering lights, if you put lights in, in the colors of, of puppies, that's what it looked like. It was just moving around with made no sense whatsoever. And I'm like, that, that's, that's more creepy still. But I said, this is, this, even if we get murdered, this is our only solution. I'm thinking, I don't tell him that. Um, but I say like, at, at the same time, you, you think that is the only pseudo human uh, thing we've seen in the last six hours. So let's go see if they can help us. And uh, at the same time, when we're four more minutes in, Joel gets stuck in a river. I got to get off, get him off the river. And I'm extremely tired, not of the day, but also the altitude really makes things really, really hard. So getting him on off the bike. And I keep going. And then I start, my light, my, my bicycle headlight starts sort of showing there's a person there. And it ended up being Abraham, who owned a gold and platinum mine. 
Um, he didn't own the mine itself, but the rights to it and, and sort of the land. He lived there with uh, his family, his two children. And he said, what are you guys doing? Literally in Spanish, like, what are you doing? Like, where are, what, what's going on? I was like, <laughs> you know, we're trying to get to Cajamarca. He says, you're four and a half hours from Cajamarca. Like, at that point, six hours later, we started. We still were four and a half hours. And he says, you guys need to stay here overnight. And that moment, I look at Joel, and at that point, like, it took, like, maybe two seconds to say, yeah, this is the right decision. And um, everything sort of turned into a completely different picture. Um, they gave us tarps. They gave us extra blankets. Uh, I never been colder in my life. I, we cooked. Uh, we camped. And then we passed out. And the next morning, we woke up in the most stunning, stunning landscape uh, I've seen. And, and then you realize that the distance between the creation of these ideas and the reality of them. It was, it was a very important moment in the trip, I think, because it showed us that it's all about living these moments and sort of letting them affect you, letting them change you, letting them make you grow. And that in the end also people are there to help you and that um, there's very little to plant, that it's just about trying to figure it out at one mile at a time. I think that's what it would learn. It's one mile at a time. But at the same time, when this happened again to us, by the way, we, we learned a lesson, yeah. Um, it happened to us again a month later, it was a completely different picture. The same situation in a different country, in a different landscape, but we felt we've been here before. We've done this. It's not that bad. We know the options. We need to be careful, but it does affect you. And I think that's the thing. You need to let these things be able to build on you. You can't keep going back to that original fear. You have to let them transform you as well. Yeah, well, and that was one of the things I thought was so interesting about the trip, just the, you know, the sheer duration of it, the fact that it was six months long, that... Um, I would imagine as it unfolded that, you know, you were able in a sense to sort of feel yourself change and, and become more confident as the trip unfolded, as opposed to sort of doing something and looking back on it later. Like, it seems like you were confronted with similar situations again and again. And so you kind of got to like, see how you measured up. Yeah, I guess it's practice as well. I think that the big, the, the big learning here for me was that to be able to grow, you have to put yourself in a position where you can grow. I think sometimes we make decisions based on what we know. And I think there is very little opportunity for growth. And, and, and what I consider reward, if, if you keep repeating the, the, the situations, environments, um, the work that you do that you already know, I think trying uh, to put yourself in positions where you don't um, know the answer. It's what, what actually helps you push forward and, and grow as a human, as a, in my case, as a designer, and, you know, even as a friend or, you know, anything. When you guys had another moment that I think you were starting to touch on earlier um, in the Uyuni Flats where mm -hmm. your bike broke down, right? Mm -hmm. And maybe you can kind of just set the scene for people what that situation was. Yeah. So the uni flats are the largest flat, salt flats in the world. It's basically a white landscape, absolutely flat, 
And our time had rain. So it had maybe about three inches of water, which makes it into a mirror. It's a mirror and also it's white, which means it reflects the sun. The sun was really blasting that day. Um, we're high, so it's high UV. It's really like you can get burned really fast because like here, even it's flat, we're in Altiplan. In Altiplan, I don't know uh, the word in English, but um, you are at 14, 13, 12,000 feet. Um, it's really hot, but I have to wear my hoodie, otherwise I'm going to get burned um, and in my arms. And I am surrounded by salty water, which is terrible for motorcycles. And Joel's bike just breaks down. And at that point, I think we've been into the trip for at least four and a half months. And so many things have happened. And I constantly made the same mistake of saying, I can fix this. Just give me 30 minutes. Just give me an hour. And get with that mindset and trying to fix something in 30 minutes and an hour, sort of not managing my expectations and getting upset if I didn't do it in 30 minutes or an hour and then taking three days. So here I was like, you know what, Joel, this is broken. And sort of I took my other jacket, sort of the big jacket, took it on, opened the bike, pulled my tools out and say, it's going to take what it's going to take. But I wasn't in a rush. I was finally focused. This is the issue. And I just failed actually three times and then eventually, you know, figured it out. And I think was the mindset of saying, let's not think about when do we have to leave? What is, if we don't fix this, we can't leave this place. I mean, it's a desolate um, sort of salt water desert. And, and it just made me think about the preparation we've done before had been very helpful, but also the time that I spent on the road building that patience, building that sort of uh, framework of being able to, to just be there, be present, and focus on the, on the matter at hand, which was uh, fixing this bike so we can move on. I wasn't pulling from all of my past you know, issues, anger, like frustrations. I was like, this is the only thing I have to do. Everything around me, almost even the landscape sort of disappeared. And I was like, I'm fixing this. And that was the only thing I was thinking of. And that's why I think we, we were able to do it four hours later. But um, we did it and we left. And yeah, it was quite an accomplishment, I feel. Yeah, well, it's kind of like if you had had that moment like one month into the trip. Like, I would murder someone. <laughs> Probably Joel, by the way. I'm sorry, Bob. <laughs> So you get to this moment and you're in a good place. You know, you're having breakdowns now, but you like fix them calmly. You're kind of like moving on. You guys are kind of like in your groove. And then uh, you just get to a moment where you're just kind of flying over your handlebars at 70 miles an hour. Mm, yeah. What it's, happened there? Um, yeah, it still gives me anxiety to think about it, uh, <laughs> to be honest. Um, we were going through this road in Bolivia which uh, is one of the roads of the Paris-Dakar, which is like uh, a very famous uh, sort of um, rally road. A week before that, it, like the entire, you know, Dakar had passed through that. So we were excited. It was a beautiful day, uh, a beautiful landscape, uh, sort of very flat, mountains in the end. It was a clear blue sky day. And there's these this vicuñas, which are sort of llamas, around and they're coming to the road and not into the road but like it's just beautiful and very bucolic if you want but 
you know, we're alone and we know that there's, you know, nothing around us, but, you know, we're uh, with our newfound friend, Simone, he's an Italian guy doing the strip solo. And we relax and we're sort of going for it. And I'm following someone, um, you know, I think. So you're following Simone? I'm this? following Simone and I'm following to his space. I'm following what he's, he's, you know, the way he's writing, which till that point I was following my own rhythm. And, um, I was following him and a couple of times the bike sort of did a weird gesture that rear tire sort of went and which told me sort of the type of uh, dirt road that we were on, a little bit of sand here and there. But you know, when you're riding, you, you let the bike sort of do its thing and it always wants to go straight most of the time. And um, at some point, I remember literally saying to myself, and this sounded like 30 seconds, but it was probably two and a half you're not holding the handlebars and that's not good. And I remember the handlebars just in front of me flapping left to right and me not holding them and saying, this is not good. Something's going to happen. And the last thing I remember is that. Um, after that, I woke up and I was very agitated. I was very hot. I looked around and I was like, where I am. I didn't, I didn't know where I was or why I was there, uh, completely stunned. Um, and I sort of moved my, my toes and my fingers and I was like, nothing is broken. I was just sort of like wiggling a little bit around and everything seemed in place. And I was still like, Joel was next to me, agitated, saying, how are you? I, I mean, I, I, I listened to that later in, in a video that by chance I was filming but uh, on my helmet camera, but I remember not knowing what he was saying to me. I didn't understand it. So after that, uh, Simone took his bike, went for to get an ambulance. Uh, it took an hour and a half, then took an hour and a half to come back. Then they took me, took two and a half hours to go to uh, to Oruro, the nearest town. And then it took them another seven hours for them to pick my bike with a police car and go to Oruro. And I remember thinking like how lucky I had been, but also how silly I was forgetting the principles of control risk. Like you got to know where your limits are. And I have surpassed them. And I, I knew it. I knew it the two times that the bike made a gesture. I knew you got to slow down, but I was looking at someone and say, no, no, no. I'm following him. And I, to be very honest, I thought he cannot see that I can't, you know, keep up with him because I can't. Well, I couldn't, you know, <laughs> I couldn't. That was obvious after I smashed my bike. Uh, the bike flew over me. Thank God it didn't follow me. And it did two flips and a kick. So it a kick flip, you know, 180 and, and, and uh, 360 uh, forward. That was a, also a moment in which, you know, I learned that idea of control risk. Like, I have to follow my own pace. I have to know where my limits are. And, um, yeah, it was a huge moment in my life. I can't, I think about it every day, actually. And uh, Were you scared when you had to get back on your bike, you know, afterwards? You know what? It's strange. It's strange because I was in Bolivia. I wasn't... I fixed the bike. It took me three days to fix the bike and the bike ran okay. Uh, it was lucky the way it fell. And I think during those three days, I was sort of thinking about this. Like, what am I going to do? I'm going to, Joel, see you later. Let's take a flight back to Spain. 
my bones didn't hurt much. Like I had a, but it was okay. I, I, I took a, a scan. My, my head was okay. Everything was fine. I, I was just, you know, mangled up a little bit, but I thought, so what are the options here? The options is we fly back and the other options we keep going. And I realized that that fear of having an accident, it wasn't something that lived in my head. It was, you know, it was a circumstance that happened to me, but that was not going to stop me from keep going. The bike wasn't the issue. The issue was me. I was the one controlling the bike. You know, if you said that someone had run me over, that's a different thing. That didn't happen. It was me that I couldn't control my bike. So it was all about resetting how I thought about being on the road, resetting about how I thought about my, my, my skills and what could I do. So I remember sitting on the bike and feeling a little strange about it, but I didn't feel scared. Also, you know that you cannot be in fear while riding a two-wheeled vehicle. So we just took it a little slower and um, we went. So. so even though you just told us, you know, how maybe you almost died, mm-hmm. I'm sure that some people um, in the audience now or who are listening later will be wondering, you know, will kind of be thinking, well, that's cool that you got to go on this spirit journey and find yourself and so forth. But like, I can't do that. I don't have time to take a six month trip. Like, I don't know how to ride a motorcycle. Like, did it, you know, that, that, that it's sort of a luxury. Like, what would you say to people who feel like doing something like this is kind of out of reach for them? I think they need to look around their own lives and figure it out what are the things that they, it matters to them in life? I think that we all actually have time. If you think about your career, if you're thinking about your career, you have a career probably that would last between 25 to 35 years. You can't take 0.1% of that career to go on a trip. You know, we've set up these rules about working five, five days a week, eight hours a day. These rules come from like the industrial revolution. It's not even like something that makes sense today. Where, you know, the idea of what, why do we work? You know, we work to live. We work to experience. So why don't we make more time for experience than to work? So it's all of these things that to me amount in my head. Also, living on the road in South America is way cheaper than New York City, by the way. Uh, way cheaper. But at the same time, it's about what are you worrying about? You're worrying about that you leave and then come back and this would be, you know, gone, that you, no one's going to give you a job, that your career will be affected. No one, no one gives a shit about your career. <laughs> Seriously, no one gives uh, a damn about it. It's like, it's a construct, you know, your career is what you made out of it. You know, I think we're scared of saying, yeah, I'm taking seven months and I'm going to explore this continent, that continent. And thinking, what are they going to think about it? I think sometimes we say, yeah, I'm thinking about going on a trip for seven months and waiting for the other one to say, wow, that's amazing. It's like, really? That's what you're doing? Just say it. Say, I'm going on a trip. I'm doing this for myself. I think it's interesting to explore, to find new places, new people. Like, it's really like, it's not that hard. And I, it's also not about money. It requires actually less money than people will think. And we have... You know, I, you know, it's, I don't want to get into sort of the, the math equations of, of it, but we do 
spend a lot of other money, you know, going to Tulum and uh, to <laughs> Berlin, you know, and all these cool places that we go, you know? Like, don't lie to yourselves. Like, it is not, I, I don't know if you've seen the places I was staying. It's not, you know, the Park Hyatt, you know, it is, uh, it is about, so I think we, we give this idea, these excuses to ourselves about money, uh, about the career, about our job, you know, about the, the things that we have at this point. And I think if you take the leap, if you take this risk, if you take the time to give this time to yourself, you'll gain, will gain perspective. You'll gain strength, physical, emotional, and uh, psychological. You'll be much better off as anything that you do in life, also as a human, after the trip than before the trip. You're not going to be in a worse position. You're not going to be less equipped to live life and to do anything that you want to do than before. It's an investment, basically. But you have to see it like that. Also, I don't think there's a sense of guilt, almost, of taking time, you know. And I don't know, if I sort of want to weave it with this thing about, like, you've heard this thing in the last 10 years, five years, even more through social media, which replicates ideas constantly, like, follow your passion. How is that advice? Like, of course you have to follow your passions. It's basically saying, no, yeah, yeah, no, I, that shitty job that you had for the last 10 years, follow your passion. It's like, that shouldn't be part of the advice. We should be doing that, you know? For me, passion is motorcycles. For me, passion is traveling as well. Not tourists, but being a traveler. It's, it's distinction I find to be important. And I don't think it's a luxury. I've met a lot of people on the road that have left everything. They've rented their apartments. They left their apartments. They sold everything they had. They put the things they didn't want to sell on storage. Motorcycle is the cheapest way to go. Some of them uh, worked on the road. Some of them um, worked on jobs on the road. Some of them worked remotely. It can be done, and it's not that hard. And it is a construct. And I think it's a construct that it's a luxury. And I think the fact that you think that taking time for yourself in your life and your career for seven months, it's a luxury. It's sort of backwards to me. Well, I think it, it kind of goes back to you were saying earlier, right? Like it's about whatever you don't have. To, it doesn't have to be a six month trip. You don't have to be on a motorcycle. It's more about creating a set of circumstances that kind of tests you. Right. So like one of the things you were telling me when we talked in the past, like why you love being on a motorcycle is because when you're, you know, riding a motorcycle, you have to be present. You have to be self-reliant and you have to be alone with your own thoughts, mm -hmm. right? And then you're on a journey and you don't know exactly what's going to happen. And that's the risk. But like, for instance, so the podcast episode that, that launched today, I was talking to um, this designer, Craig Maud, about this Vipassana meditation retreat that he went on. And um, he was so compelling. I decided to go on a Vipassana meditation retreat. And right, that idea creates the same, you know, you have to be present. You have to be self-reliant. You have to be alone with your own thoughts. And I think he used this phrase when we were talking about it earlier, kind of like feeling the weight or carrying, kind of carrying the weight with you. And so to me, it's not about like motorcycles. It's not about six month trip. It's more about putting yourself in some type of situation that's going to like test you, right? Whatever that is for you. And I, for I, me, it's going to be sitting in one place and not being able to accomplish anything for 10 days. <laughs> <laughs> Fair. I think that um, what I was referring to is that, and I think I learned this 
this way to put it, I learned I was as I was on the trip. It's the idea of um, we wake up in the morning, we look at the watch, 7.20, I have a 20 minutes to get ready. Okay, I get ready, then I go to shower, then I get in the subway, so it's late, then I get to work, then it's someone comes talk to me, then I have to look at the email for 25 minutes, and then it's another meeting, and it's lunchtime, and then I uh, do lunch, and then I go into 17,000 more meetings, and then I have three hours of design, and then, oh, it's, it's 7.30, I should go, and then I go have dinner, and then from dinner, I go see, have drinks with someone else, and then I go home, and I'm like, oof, I'm going to go to sleep, and then I wake up the next day. And you think, when do you get to think? When do you get to be alone with your thoughts? Well, and when do you break from that routine, right? So where is the time in which you get to actually be alone with your thoughts and feel the weight of the things that you have not answered um, for the last 38 years? The questions that are burning, the questions that really wait on you, you know? And what happens is that when you're on a motorcycle for six months straight, there's thousands of hours where you're just riding on a road along with your thoughts and that's when you feel the weight and then you feel the weight enough that you have to start answering those questions um that is a harder task i think answering the questions i feel i came back with more with more questions than answers but if you don't have the questions i don't think i don't think you get you open the door to even find the answer. So in a way, like those questions are really the root of solving some of these uh, unknowns. It was also a time for me to forgive a lot of people, some people who are not here, you know, anymore um, in my mind and also ask for forgiveness, um, things that waited on me and, be present, feel, you know, my body. I didn't have internet for most of the time. And I sort of disconnected from these routines of, of depending on outside sources of information and attention. And then you realize that you're there, you know, and everything that is being packed away for a very long time is coming really back and it's just staring you in the face. And I think that's one of the biggest things about this trip that about a trip, about spending time on your own, that you can't escape them. You think you're going to go to Bolivia and your problems are going to stay here? They're right behind you with your bike. They follow you everywhere. <laughs> it's fascinating, isn't it? No, they, and it's, it's a silly thing, but that's it. You can't escape them. So that's the time that you give yourself to think. But I think at the same time, the bigger the risks, the bolder the risks, the bolder the choices that we make, I feel the bigger the rewards, you know? And this is sort of about saying, screw this, I'm, I'm, I'm quitting this job. I don't, I'm not happy here. I don't like what I'm doing. It's not uh, fulfilling enough. I, I need to really find what, what makes me feel like me. And I think when we, when we take those steps is when we're really like, I have never seen someone who's taken that step that has been worse off after leaving a place and trying to find a new solution. I think we're always better off after taking those bold moves. And sometimes it's, it's time to be bold. So I have one um, last question for you. I know that a lot of people asked you when you got back, you know, what was your big realization? So I'm not going to ask you that because I think that's a really annoying question. This idea that you could like distill down six months of experience into, you know, a single takeaway. But instead, I wanted to ask you, you know, what did you think would happen on the trip 
that didn't happen or, you know, you mentioned sort of leaving maybe with more questions than answers. The big realization was that there was no big realization. Um, (laughs) That at the end is about that in every sort of area of our lives is about taking it one day at a time, one day at a time. That's all we learned, I think. And it was a huge, huge um, learning for me because we always try to project into the future. We're always trying to plan ahead, um, thinking we know how and where we are going to end up. And in reality, I figured out that if I plan one or two days, you know, ahead, uh, I can manage my expectations. And also, it's more realistic. You can't rush it. Even if you, and this is, this is what's interesting. When you do a physical trip that is that long, equate it to something that you want to get in life. Well, I had to do 19,000 miles on my ass to get there. You couldn't do it faster. You can't leapfrog it. You can't, you know, go 200 miles per hour, 24 hours a day. It's impossible. It's physically impossible. So I think if you equate that to your expectations, how you want your career to go, your relationships to go, your friendships to go, I think there's a, there's a parallel there where you cannot sort of manufacture, you know, your path. You have to sort of do it one day at a time, one mile at a time. And it takes a long time. And I think if you have patience, you can manage your expectations and also enjoy every mile, every day, everything that you do, like be present and understand the things that you actually have, not the things that you you don't have. The idea that most struck me from this conversation was Matthias's notion of feeling the weight, that when you choose to go on a long journey or take a sabbatical or do anything at all that involves breaking out of your work routine for an extended period of time, you're going to feel that weight you're going to have to confront some of those questions that you've been avoiding. Now, we live in a cultural moment where daily routines are glorified, where optimization is presented as the solution to all of our problems. But what if that's backwards? What if routines and optimization are just another way of avoiding a confrontation with the deeper questions, of never having to put ourselves in unfamiliar or uncomfortable situations? Maybe routine is a luxury, a luxury that you have to be willing to let go of if you're seeking true transformation. Before I go, a quick reminder, if you've been enjoying this podcast, there is a 99.9% chance that you will also enjoy my weekly newsletter, which is all about how to find more meaning and creativity in your daily work. It also, of course, includes notes on the latest episodes of Hurry Slowly and other projects that I'm percolating. You can sign up at the podcast website at hurryslowly.co slash newsletter. And now it's time for your final moment of zen. Uh, My first trip by myself on a motorcycle, and I went for three weeks. I spent five days beforehand with my friend John, and we were in Texas and he was going to go back and the hour the 30 minutes before that i started feeling really sick and i started feeling very hot and very agitated and i thought i just ate the terrible burrito but <laughs> which i did um but it wasn't that it was it wasn't fear. the burrito it wasn't the burrito it was the fear 
This show was produced by Matt Susich, and our theme song was composed by Devin Craig Johnson. If you took something away from this episode, I would love it if you left us a review on iTunes. Every rating helps us find new listeners and keep the momentum going. Thanks again for tuning in, and remember to take your time. <laughs>